Good morning. And before we get going in class this morning today, I want to introduce a new member of our class. Is he here? How old is Eli now? Ten weeks old today. There's Eli, right there, Eli Bonin. Yes, Eli, welcome to our class. Yes, we're glad he's here, and we're glad you all are here. We've missed you. And we have a couple of prayer requests this morning. We want to uh, pray for uh, Margaret Tilstra, a longtime member of our class, who is going to be having surgery on Tuesday. And we want to pray for Barbara Granada's mother, uh, Juanita Palango. Uh, she is evidently going to the hospital and needing some type of um, procedure, a biopsy, and we're not sure what's wrong with her at this time. Let's go ahead and, and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you have not abandoned us to the circumstances we are in, but you have intervened and are constantly intervening for our health and our welfare and our good and our eternal salvation. Lord, we lift up to you our, our, our friends and our family members that are in need, those that we don't know by name that may have needs and haven't re- presented their request, but those we do. We, we, we request that you will be with Margaret and, and her health and, and the surgery that she will go on to be with the doctors and physicians, that they will have skill and, and abilities to intervene and that all may go well with her and she may come out of this improved. We pray that you will be with Juanita Palengo, that she's going to the hospital this week. We don't know exactly what the problems are, but you know, and we pray that you will be done in these circumstances. We also want to remember our pastor, Pastor Nixon, who has uh, had seizures and uh, is undergoing some treatment, that you will intervene and, and bring healing in accordance with your will. We pray you'll be with us this morning as we study, that we might come to know your perfect will for our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Today, we are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, People on the Move, the Book of Numbers. And the lesson title this week is Immorality on the Border. And somebody, if they will read the first two paragraphs there for us in Sabbath's lesson, beginning, Here again we see the same. Here again is the same thing, right? The Book of Numbers. God's people, led so clearly and powerfully by him, still making wrong choices, but still showing a lack of faith, and still falling into those bad disobedience. All God wanted to do from the start was bring them into the promised land. And time and again, all they were doing by their choices was making it so much more difficult for that to happen. And there was not, no question about it, God's overriding providence is so good, and they're not going to succeed. Just as He brought His ancient covenant people to promise land, the same in the end times for us. How much better, though, if we would cooperate with Him rather than against His purposes? If you could hear what she said, the paragraph is talking about. God's providences for us. He said God wanted to do more than bring them into the land of promise. Did God want to do more than bring them into the land of promise? Is that all he wanted to do? Just to bring them into Canaan? He wanted to do more than that. And what does it mean that God's, it said in the lesson, God's overriding providence succeeded then in bringing them into the land of promise and will succeed with, the, with us at the end of time? If, if you thought about that, did God's overriding providence succeed in accomplishing what God truly wanted to accomplish with the people of Israel those many years ago. See, the lesson implies that it did by bringing them into into Canaan. Um, Did God want them to wander in the desert for 40 years? Was it God wanted them to kill as they entered the land of Canaan? Did God want them to get involved with the fertility cults that we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so there were a lot of problems here. And I guess the question is, are there some limitations to God's providence? She says only what we put on it. And so I looked up the word providence in the dictionary. This is what the word providence in the dictionary means. It means the foreseeing care and guidance of God 
over the creatures of the earth? Can we limit God's ability to care for us? Can we? I hear to know that we can't limit God's ability to care for us. We don't have to accept it. We can't limit his ability, though. We can limit what we choose to accept. If you talk about his inherent ability, how about within the within the principles that God runs his universe upon? Does he have certain limits that he won't that he won't cross? And then with that understanding of his nature and character that he won't cross certain limits of individual freedoms and so forth, then do we have the ability to limit what he will do in our lives? Not his heart's desire, but what he actually will do. Why did God bring the ancient people into the promised land? Was it because they were righteous, mature, and spiritually healthy? Well, because it's making a connection here that God brought the children of Israel into the promised land, and likewise, His providence will be revealed in bringing us into our promised land. So they're making a connection between the two. And so we ought to ask, well, what was the reason He brought them into the promised land then? And if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1-7, through it says, Listen, people of Israel, today you are about to cross the Jordan River and occupy the land belonging to nations greater and more powerful than you. Their cities are large, with walls that reach to the sky. The people themselves are tall and strong. They are giants, and you have heard it said that no one can stand against them. But now you will see for yourselves that the Lord your God will go ahead of you like a raging fire. He will defeat them as you advance, so that you will drive them out and destroy them quickly as He promised. After the Lord Lord your God has driven them out for you, do not say to yourselves that he brought you into this land because you deserved it. No, the Lord is going to drive these people out for you because they are wicked. It is not because you are good and do what, what is right that the Lord is letting you take their land. He will drive them out because they are wicked and because he intends to keep the promise that he made to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can be sure that the Lord is not giving you this land this fertile land because you deserve it. No, you are a stubborn people. Three times. Now, we're making the connection, or it's making the, 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 the analogy between God bringing his providence, bringing him into the promised land then, and his bringing us into our promised land now, our eternal promised land. Do you think there'll be a difference in the condition of the people? Yeah. Or will he bring us into our eternal promised land with the same description that we are not righteous, we are stubborn, we are not healthy, we are not spiritually renewed? Or is there some aspect that God is waiting for a people to actually experience His regeneration and healing and cleansing and renewal before we go into the promised land? Is there a difference? These people were in such bad condition back then. Why did He bring them into their promised land? Because God had a larger mission. God had a larger mission than just the people of Israel. He had a mission to save the entire planet, all nature groans under the weight of sin, to redeem human, the human species and beings, and to eradicate sin from the entire universe. God was working on a much larger mission than just the nation of Israel, and therefore God was working to keep his promise given to Abraham. And what was the promise? That the seed would come. And the seed was? Christ. Christ. It was working on the promise to bring the Messiah because without the Messiah, then sin wouldn't be eradicated in the universe. Humanity couldn't be saved. The earth couldn't be freed from the groaning under the weight of sin. So God was working for the ultimate solution through the people of Israel. And he brought them into the promised land 
to fulfill the purpose of healing the universe from sin. Not simply because they deserved it, which they evidently didn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Did the children of Israel have to be spiritually mature to be able to fulfill that purpose of being an avenue through which the Messiah was going to come? No, and they weren't. Do we have to be spiritually mature to be able to stand in God's presence when he arrives? There's a big difference. It's not simply, well, we sit back, God's providence is going to happen, um, you know, ali, ali, and free, here I come, ready or not. That's not what's going to happen. God is waiting. In fact, yes? Was the thief on the cross spiritually mature? Do we we have to be spiritually mature, or do we just have to love God's government and resonate to God's government uh, and, and then complete our maturing in heaven? I guess it depends on what you, how we define maturity. Right. If we define spiritual maturity as people who have come to the point that they distrust self and they've come to trust their life completely into God's hands, they may not have figured out all the ins and outs of the 2300-day message and all these kinds of things, but do they come to love God, trust Him with their lives, and willing to follow where He leads? If that's the definition of spiritual maturity, did the thief achieve that? Yes, but I mean, that's the maturity of the child. Okay. Did the children of Israel going into Canaan achieve that? No. They didn't even achieve that much. And so, I think it comes to the point that we are we, we trust him more than we trust self with our very lives. And that's what it says in Revelation about those that are ready to meet him. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That they surrender their lives completely into his keeping rather than trying to watch out for themselves still. I think that's the big change. And then there are different levels of gradation of healing preparing along the way. But ultimately, the character of Christ is revealed by whether you can say all 66 of the books of the Bible in order, or whether you can love others more than self. And is maturity the evolving Maturity, of course, we will never stop growing, will we? Through alternative, but there is, a, there is a level that we have to achieve, and I think it's the level of coming to trust God, more than we trust ourselves and turning our lives over to him that we will follow him where he leads. If we don't trust him, wouldn't you say that's kind of the bottom line? That we have to come to trust God more than self? Yeah, and then we love him and we love others? We're looking at this comparison between Canaan and us. Can we do anything to hasten the day? Since the children of Israel didn't really care, it didn't really matter their spiritual condition, it seems that God, God needs our spiritual condition to, to, to somehow be beyond the children of Israel's spiritual condition. Peter himself says in 2 Peter 3.12 that, uh, that we have a role to play as we can hasten the day of the Lord. We can speed its coming. How can we do that? I'm not, I'm not sure I say it maybe that way because I do think the spiritual condition of Israel was very important and I think God could have done a lot more. I think this would have been completely different had Israel played the part God set them up to play. And I think the whole outcome, I just think the whole story would be a lot different. It was important for them. They blew it, but it was important for them. Was it required for them to be that level to go into Canaan? That's the question. No. I agree with you. I think if they'd been spiritually mature, so much of history would have been different. There's no question about it. But it wasn't a necessity for them to... It will have to be completed. 
before the controversy is over. Whenever it is in history, it is going to have to be completed that God is able to reproduce his character. God is able to make his point. God is able to demonstrate a pure and perfect defense. So, yeah, that will happen. And so maybe we are that people. Well, so that's what we're getting to for the scripture. And, and Peter, what's it mean that we can hasten the day, or maybe slow the day? The opposite. Hand in the back. Otherwise, they would have been kicked back in the wilderness for another four years for being stubborn and disobedient. Well, I'm just going by what Deuteronomy said that they were not. You do not deserve it. You're a stubborn people. You're not righteous. I mean, this is what the, the scripture said when they went in. So, and I guess we can look at what we're going to talk about today at the border about what they did just prior to going in. Contradicts or expands upon? Okay, that's one interpretation. Um, so what is the Lord waiting for? This is what it says in Christ's Object Lesson 69, expanding on the text out of Peter, where Peter says that we can hasten the day. It says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest into eternal life. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put forth the sickle, because the harvest has come. Mark 4.29. This is Christ's parable. When the fruit was ripe, the harvest came. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one perspective. What do you all think? Do you think we have any role to play in hastening our journey into heaven? Or are we just passive bystanders waiting for the world to get wicked enough? Like in Canaan, I've heard people take the Deuteronomy text and say, see, it doesn't matter how righteous we get. It's irrelevant. We have to wait for the world to get wicked enough. And when the world gets wicked enough, just like in Canaan, that's when we get to go to heaven. Is that what God is waiting for, for the world to get wicked enough? Or is he waiting for a people to get ready to stand in his presence without being consumed when they see him? Yes. The world's already been wicked enough for a long time. He said the world's been wicked enough for a long time. <laughs> Other thoughts? Well, he says, don't preach the gospel to all the world and then the end shall come. When we preach the gospel, it's a witness to the gospel of the kingdom. What kingdom? Gospel. The kingdom of? Love. Love. Is that the gospel that has gone to the world? Do you think there's a part of the world that really hasn't heard the name Jesus Christ? at this time in human history? No. But what Jesus have they heard? What God have they heard? A God who requires the appeasement of the blood of his son, my God, my God, uh, you know, this type of thing. Please don't, please don't be mean to them. Yeah. Or we've, had, we've, we've heard, uh, presented a gospel where God is just like his son. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the back. I'll be confusing the kingdom of God, which Jesus asks us to pray for, and I believe the kingdom when the Holy Spirit came reading John 14, 15. Um, and so we, we have the kingdom of God here now. The glorious kingdom, are we comparing the glorious kingdom and is that in opposition to the kingdom of God right now? Yeah, the kingdom of God, as I understand it, is not just the glory of glorification, but the kingdom of love. It's the kingdom of other-centeredness, the kingdom of self-sacrifice. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is the kingdom that, that, that the kingdom of God is supposed to live in us. And that kingdom had the Yes, and, and, and have we taken that kingdom, that gospel, the gospel of that kingdom, is that what has been preached throughout the history of the Christian church? No. Or has it been some other gospel? 
But could that not apply to the Deuteronomy statement? Regarding going into Canaan. To the presence of God with the indwelling Christ within us. I think that's exactly it. Yeah, I think we have to have that heart, the heart of Christ, rather than the heart of self. And so that it really doesn't matter when his glorious kingdom, when he comes as a thief in the night, an hour that no man knows, does that really make that much of a theological difference? If our hearts are ready, I don't think it does. No, I don't think it makes to us for an individual level, but frankly, as a human being, and as I look around the world and see the stuff going on, and we have people and family members who are in pain and in hospitals, and we have family members who are dying, and we have the grief and heartstring, I'm tired of this world. Am I the only one tired of this world? Yes. I am the only one? No. Oh, no. Okay, okay. so we're, we're all tired of this world. So, so if there's anything we can do intelligently, purposely, willfully to cooperate with hastening the day, I would like to do it. And the suggestion is that we can do that by becoming more loving. More loving to others, becoming more like Christ in the way we live our lives. And then, so the question I have, are there specific steps we can take to actually intelligently say, God, I want to do this for the purpose of cooperating with you to heal our mind? And, I, and I've listed some steps here that I think we can take to experience healing and to intelligently cooperate with him. And I want to go through those. Step one, know God. Life eternal, John 73. This is life eternal. We might know him, not know about him. You see, we know about Bill Clinton and George Bush and Obama. How many actually know them? It's not knowing about. It's knowing. And, and this is life eternal. Man, know you the only true God. That means we have to study. Every person has to study for themselves. To know what your mama believes, or your grandma believes, or what your Sabbath school teacher believes, is not the same thing as knowing it for yourself. So we each have to do this work. And so my goal, as I've said in here a hundred times, I'm not here to tell anybody what to think. I'm here to, to stimulate your own thinking to get you to research it and study it for yourself. And then as we do that, remember this is primarily a revelation of God to you and me. That's its primary purpose. And as we go through today, and what we talked about last week, we're seeing how God deals with people in various situations, circumstances, times in history, and we can learn lessons about the kind of person God is through this book. That's its primary purpose. So we can learn about him. It's not a rule book for us to, to find the things we should and shouldn't do. And we're going to discover that. There's some really cool uh, instructions from God's Word in Deuteronomy that I think would be fun for us to look at today when we get time. It's in the notes, so we're going to get there because I think you're going to be, like, shocked. God told them to do that? Oh, my, my. Man. So we'll see that it's not a rule book because you wouldn't want to follow the rules that, that they were told. Number two, meditate upon his character and his works. And, and, and brain science has revealed that when we spend time every day meditating upon, upon loving themes, God's character of altruism, love, other-centeredness, we actually change our brain. The parts of our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex where we experience altruism, love, compassion, other-centeredness, which directly when it's activated turns off the fear centers of the brain. So you experience lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, less stress hormones. You actually have a greater sense of well-being. That part grows, grows, and we can measure that growth on brain scans from just 12 minutes a day of meditating on a God of love. Just 12 minutes a day meditating on God's love, we can see that growth. Not only that, we can get measurable reductions in heart rate, blood pressure, and improvements in memory testing in 30 days. And these were people between 60 and 65 years of age. These weren't just the young kids with really, really pliable brains. These are people whose brains are kind of set and still saw this measurable growth. And 12 minutes a day is all. Listen to this text out of Desire of Ages. 
It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. And thus, and we thus, excuse me, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened. Look at that. Our love will be quickened. Yes, it's absolutely biologically proven, scientifically now. If you do this, your anterior cingulate cortex will grow. That's where you experience love, other-centered compassion. Your love will be quickened. Why the final closing scenes? Because the final closing scenes are the place where we have the greatest concentrated revelation of self-sacrificing love. And as we meditate upon that, we're changed. By beholding, we become changed. And this change not only is in neural wiring, genetic expression change. You will change the genes that are turned on and turned off in your body by this type of meditation. Third thing we can do. We can apply his principles to our lives as we understand them, which means we engage in ministry for other people. And as we apply these principles, that also results in this transformation of our brain. It says in 2 Corinthians 9.7 that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is critical. The Lord doesn't love a giver. It's a cheerful giver. Why? Because if you give out of, of a begrudging requirement, oh, got to pay my tithe. Oh, I could really use that money for my new Game Boy. But got to pay my tithe. Okay? And you begrudgingly give. You're actually activating the, the, the fear circuits and the stress circuits and the resentment circuits of your brain. You don't activate the love circuits. It's only when you give from a free heart that you get this positive neural rewiring. So you can give the behavior... But if you don't have the, the mind attitude right, you don't get the, re, the rewiring of the brain, the transformation of character. So it's a cheerful giver. Now, when it says the Lord loves a cheerful giver, does that mean he doesn't love a begrudging giver? No, so what it means is, is think about it as a parent. You love all your kids. But the kid who is doing something that's healthy for them, you love it because you realize all the good benefit that will come to them. And so you go, I love it when my kid does this. But when your kid's out here doing drugs and all this other stuff, you don't hate your child, but you hate it when they do that. And that's what it's talking about here. He loves cheerful giving because it brings such good things to his children. Number four, reject legal payment models of salvation which promote false security in some, something Christ legally did and fails to include the application of Christ's character to your life. This is false security. Once saved, always saved. My payment was made. Uh, it's, it's legal stamps in heaven on books. All this stuff. False security. This is John sixteen thirteen and 14. Jesus speaking. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me. Now get glory to me by doing what? By taking what is mine and making it known to you. Taking what is mine and making it known to you. Glorifies Christ. What is it Christ has that we need? Perfect, loving, other-centered, heart attitude and character. That's what the Holy Spirit takes, what is Christ. And so what Paul says, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Listen to this that I may know on page 94. The Spirit of Christ working upon the heart conforms it to his image. For Christ is the model upon which the Spirit works. By ministry of his word, by his providences, by his inward working, God stamps the likeness of Christ upon the soul. Or this one I really like, that I may know on page 78. The Lord Jesus loves his people, and when they put their trust in him, depending wholly upon him, he strengthens them. He will live through them, giving them the inspiration of his sanctifying spirit, imparting to the soul a vital transfusion of himself. 
think that through. A transfusion of himself. Romans 5, 5. It says that God pours his love into our hearts. God is love. He's pouring himself into our hearts. He acts through their... No, this is imparting to the soul a vital transfusion of himself. He acts through their faculties and causes them to choose his will and to act out his character. With the Apostle Paul, they may say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we find this, this transforming power that, Christ, that the Holy Spirit takes Christ's accomplishment and reproduces those in us. Yes? If you get a transfusion, it actually becomes part of you. Yes, I like that. If you get a transfusion, it becomes part of you. Isn't that good? The steps we can take to cooperate with God. Now, one we can do for each other. Here, now, in real time. The Bible says in James 5 that we should confess our sins one to another. Why? Why should we do that? Because so long as sin is in the dark, nothing can be done about it. Because when we bring the light to the sin, we can be cleansed. I like it, yes. You have a comment? If you get a transfusion, something else has to be taken out, otherwise there's no room for it. When we sin, and think about your own experience with sin, we are filled with fear, shame, guilt, self-loathing, anxiety. We fear that we will be rejected abandoned, that no one will love us, that we are not good enough. We fear that we, we, we will not be accepted any longer. This leads to isolation, internal turmoil, turmoil, unresolved guilt, which leads to living lives behind masks. We come to church with our mask. We know how to act. We know the things to say. But we're not real. We pretend. And we live in fear that if somebody gets too close... They will see below the mask and they won't like us anymore. We won't be accepted anymore. We'll be rejected. I want you to imagine that you uh, got some really good cosmetics and you were able to uh, crash one of the presidential dinners pretending to be somebody else wearing a mask. Every time a Secret Service agent comes near your table, what are you going to do? You're going to get tense? You're going to get anxious? If somebody comes up to talk to you and get close to you, do you want to keep people at a certain distance, not let them too close? They might see you're not who you pretend to be. This is what we do in life. We wear masks. We keep people at an arm's distance. We don't let people close. We're afraid they might see we're not who we pretend to be. We confess our sins. What happens? Well, this, this, this causes us a state of anxiety. It causes the stress, the stress circuits of our brain to fire, which kicks up our catecholamines and inflammatory factors, which leads to physiological health problems and mental health problems. Fear, this anxiety, is the primary emotion associated with sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. There's only one power in the universe that could free our hearts from this fear. And this fear drives us to look out for self. More fear, more self-protection. More we do to watch out to keep ourselves from getting exposed and getting hurt. Think about the time when you were really, really frightened of something. Where was your focus? totally on yourself there's only one power that frees us from that and that is the power of perfect love casts out all fear it is only the power of love when we confess our sins one to another and we experience acceptance and grace and love and we see in the eyes of the person we're talking to that they love us just as much and we're not condemned and we're not rejected it is powerful 
It is healing. And it is the administration of grace that is to be in the church. Does our church do that well? Or do we have to come with masks, afraid we won't be accepted if we were really real? Of course, years ago, there's a number of us here who probably remember going into the meeting and there would be a testimony and there was healing that would take place according to the promise and the best that you may be healed. And uh, we've gotten so far away from that. So you've seen that work? Yes. Do you all understand that everyone in this room has sinned? And if we could have the heavenly record book of each of your lives opened on this screen up here, how comfortable would you be as your, as your book came up? How eager would you be to look into everybody else's book? How much do you want your sealed? Unless you know a couple of things. If you, were, if you had uh, metastatic cancer and you were going in to the one doctor you knew could cure you, would you want to have your record sealed or would you want him to see it all? How do we experience God as the one who's going to heal us or the one who's going to condemn us? If we experience him as a condemning source, we hide our hearts from him. If we experience him as the source that heals us, we say, as David, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. How do we experience each other then? Do we experience each other not as the doctor who heals, but as the doctor's aides, the nurses and administrative aides that help the doctor? That's our role. We are to, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Do we experience members of the church as God's agents on earth to bring the healing remedy that it's safe to let yourself be known and be seen? I don't think we do. I think it's frightening. I think we're afraid. because, And why don't we? Because the agents that work for the king work on the principles they believe the king works on. So if we have a king that is a legal authority that has to bring legal condemnation and inflict legal penalties upon the wrongdoers, then we have an attitude of condemnation. If we have a king who is the great healer, the lover of our souls, that wants to restore and set us free, who sent his son to be the the medium through which we could be healed and restored, then we minister a healing remedy to those who come to us. Consider the woman caught in adultery brought before Christ. What is it that empowered her to live a better life? Remember the story. She was caught in adultery, the very act, brought before Christ, thrown down on the street, in front of everyone, after he dispatches the crowd, remember what a beautiful, magnificent job he did of that, he says, and notice the question he says to her, where are your accusers? Now, who's in this conversation? Jesus and her. What is implied by the question? I'm not accusing you. You and I are here. All the accusers are gone. You didn't hear me point out. No, I've known everything you've done. I mean, they just drug you out here. I'm aware of it. Uh, But you know what? I'm not one of the ones condemning you. I'm not accusing you. Where are they? And so we don't miss it. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and live a, a better life. Go and leave your life of sin. And I'm going to suggest to you what empowered her was the reality of his grace that he, she experienced from him no condemnation but love, even though he knew. He knew. He, she looked into his eyes. She knew. He knew. And she didn't experience condemnation. She saw love and grace and forgiveness. And it inspired and empowered her. This is out of the book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace? Question 
whether this is a representation of the church today. It's the opening page of his book. He says, I told a story in my book, The Jesus I Never Knew, a true story that long afterward continued to haunt me. I heard it from a friend who works with the down and out in Chicago. A prostitute came to see me wretched in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked her if she had ever thought of going to church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. What struck me about my friend's story is that women, such like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus, when he lived on earth, no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? Thoughts? We don't do a very good job of that. I think what you're saying, the confession thing, if I understand what you're saying, is A, it's important for both the confessor and whoever it's confessed to. It is a crucial ingredient to both parties. And secondly, I think we do very poorly on both sides of it. We confess sometimes, not like the person that you're talking about, but we confess those things that we can deal with people knowing. Not anything that really takes us through, often for us in the church, takes us through a real confession. We confess those things that are that we can handle ourselves and we think other people will handle. And when someone confesses to us, I think often we're, we convey an attitude of acceptance, but in our heart, both parties know there's still a judgment associated with it. Oh, that's okay, I understand. I would never do that, but I understand that you did. Type of. And do you notice in our culture, I'm speaking the Adventist culture now, that is really, really admirable We actually look up to people who've committed atrocities and horrible sins before they were an Adventist. And they confess and are baptized and are now saved. They get to go on the lecture circuit and talk about their lives before Adventism. You've heard those lectures, right? But what happens to someone in the church that does the same thing? We kick them out. That's why AA works and not the church. That's why AA works and not the church. Yes. One of the steps of AA, by the way, is to find a person who's trustworthy and do a searching moral inventory and confess all your sins to that person. It's one of the steps of AA, and it is healing. It's redemptive. It's restorative. Yes. One thing that has helped me, instead of thinking of the church as everyone's got together, think of it more as a hospital. We're all coming here weekly to be filled again. I like it. Let's think of an HIV ward at a hospital. You can imagine there's a lot of stress and a lot of sick people. HIV, as you know, is a a virus that affects the immune system. 
But because it affects the immune system, it makes us vulnerable to opportunistic infections, which means a person suffering with AIDS can look a, a lot of different ways. You can have somebody suffering with cytomegalovirus infections of the retinas. You can have somebody with uh, Carposi sarcoma on the skin. You can have some, somebody with pneumocystis coronae infection of the lungs, pneumonia of the lungs. All kinds of different presentations. Same disease looks totally different. This is a good metaphor for sin. We all suffer the same thing, but, it, but we can present with all types of different presentations. Now imagine being on the HIV ward. All of them dying of AIDS. And the group over here that are going blind are criticizing those over here with all this cough and nasty mucus. And all these over here with the nasty mucus are criticizing those over here with those lesions on their skin. You see? And everybody's mocking. I don't want to be near those people. Those people. Then, you, you, follow, you see the problem here? This is what we do. We're all dying of the same disease, but we have different symptoms that manifest in our lives until we experience remedy. But instead of actually joining together as a hospital, I like the metaphor, instead we begin casting stones at those who look different than us. We have a lot to learn. All right, we're, we're talking about how we can cooperate. I think this is a major thing that we could do for each other to bring healing to our hearts and minds that we don't do, to help us prepare. And, and it would not only bring healing to the individual, but think of the unity. As they came to one accord in the upper room, then the spirit fell. We can't come into one accord as long as we're all still hiding behind masks. And we only will come into one accord when we love others more than ourselves and stop trying to watch out for ourselves. Number six, avoid theatrical entertainment. Why avoid theatrical entertainment for the healing of our mind? Because theatrical entertainment activates your limbic system. The limbic system is where you have all this impulsive, aggressive, anxious stuff and where the fear centers are located. And it also paralyzes prefrontal cortex where you reason and think and experience love. So theatrical entertainment actually causes neural circuits of the brain to alter in a way so you're more impulsive, you're more moody, you're more anxious, you're more fear-ridden, and increases the rates of various mental illnesses the more theatrical entertainment you watch. Uh, it's most devastating in the developmental years because the brains are much more vulnerable in the developmental years. And science as multiple studies have now documented that the more theatrical entertainment kids watch, the more ADHD they have, the more impulse control problems, the more adolescent sexual issues, violence issues, and drug and alcohol issues they get because they can't control the impulse of their limbic system because the prefrontal cortex is not prepared for that. Um, and the other thing that theatrical entertainment does is it teaches a value system and belief concepts that alter the worldview and, the, and, and we, from which we draw our, our principles for decision making. So all that. Yes, it's all hand over here. Does that also apply to other forms of television? I mean, theatrical sounds to me like movies and stuff, but how about like say sports or news? Yeah, she, she asked about other forms, and it doesn't apply to other forms. Let's talk about age. Below the age of two, all television is harmful. Uh, Baby Einstein... An educational TV, Sesame Street, before the age of two, delays language development, impairs, um, uh, impairs the ability to speak, impairs cognitive development before the age of two. After the age of two, educational television actually has been shown to enhance some of these skills as we uh, watch some of them, but not before the age of two. So age, age is, a, is, a, is a factor in, in, in the developing brain. Um, but um, some, of the, so some of the television you've asked about is kind of in a gray zone. We have clear educational programming that's designed to teach. We have theatrical entertainment. And we have things that are kind of tweener stuff, like news. That's the worst thing. Well, it, you know, it, it depends. News can be informative. It also can be, um, it also can be misleading and deceptive. It can, get, it can, it can be um, propaganda to, um, to brainwash. And so you have to be very careful with the news. And then sports, sports can also be something that can be uh, Olympic system driven rather than an intellectual process. So it, I think it's in a tweener, tweener zone there. Voyeurism. 
voyeurism. In the news. In the news, yeah. Yeah. So avoid theatrical entertainment. And uh, I, we don't have time because our time, boy, is just zipping by. Uh, Friday's lesson has a nice paragraph talks about how that, that gradual change comes. Avoid toxic substances. We won't go into why. Exercise, which is really healthy and produces really cool chemicals for your body and brain. And then trust God. This is a good one I just need to mention. Trust God with your future. This is trust God with outcomes. Our responsibility are to implement into our life and make decisions that we understand are the right course, principles, and harmony with God's will, not for how things will turn out. And we so often want to control outcomes. We want to make sure our kids turn out right. You know, parents are not responsible for how their kids turn out. Parents are responsible for their, their governance of themselves in parenting. There are so many influences on outcomes that you can't control. Your kid is on a sleepover with a with another friend, and and uh, and they go out for some uh, for some ice cream, and there's a and your your child is in the car when somebody runs a red light, and they're in a wreck, and she and your child sees their best friend and their best friend's mom killed in this car wreck. Do you think that could affect the outcome of that kid's life? Did you do something wrong as a parent? The parents cannot control outcomes; they can control their conduct in in parenting. This is through all life. I had a patient who came to see me, wise investment banker, made many, many good, intelligent decisions, made a recent decision of about seven years ago, um, and then, boom, the whole economy went belly up, and, and that turned out to be a, a very financially devastating decision. But at the time, with the evidence he had, looked really good. Lost the whole investment portfolio. Because of something he did wrong? No. Because of a bunch of profiteers on Wall Street that did all this, you know, the whole thing that led our economy into this. And the metaphor I used was, you're out in the, in the uh, lake on your boat, and you've, and you've taken really good, um, um, you know, boating classes, and you really know how to handle your boat well, and you're doing great, and somebody blows up the dam. And the whole lake goes, and now your boat's on the bottom. Have you done something wrong? No, that's what happened to a lot of people financially. Somebody blew up the, the financial reservoir. Boom! The whole economy went like that. And a lot of people got sunk. Did they do something wrong? No, but they look at themselves, I should have known, I should have done this. No, we can't control outcomes. We control our decisions with the information we have at the time. Trust God with the future, with how things turn out. And ask him, what are my responsibilities in decision-making and governance of me? It's a big difference. It takes a lot of pressure off. Okay, well, all those things we can do. We've got to go on. There's so many cool things I wanted to talk about in the lesson today. Um, Sunday's lesson talks about the immorality that happened on the border going into Canaan. And we, uh, Numbers 25, 1 through 3, it talks about how uh, while Israel was staying at Shittim, the uh, men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women and invited them to sacrifice to their gods and so forth. And then they ate. And, and then the paragraph there, the fourth paragraph in the lesson, talks about this, this, this cascade of, of destructive consequences and events. And I asked the question, any examples in Scripture of sexual relations being the avenue of downfall in which men or women of God who were called, uh, called by God were brought down through sex? Any other examples besides Samson? Anybody else? Solomon? David Bathsheba. Okay. So we have this example. The question then is, why is this such a powerful medium? When we have sexual relations with someone, there's a neurobiologic change that happens in our brain in which that we actually become more emotionally tied to the person, neurobiologically in the brain, that we've had sex with. What happens during sexual encounters is that we get a surge of dopamine in conjunction with two neuropeptides called vasopressin and oxytocin. And these neuropeptides in conjunction with dopamine actually cause a wiring change in your brain uh, where you've experienced attachment so that you have a greater attachment to this person than anybody else 
which means they now have greater influence over you than they did before you had sex with them. They have entered an inter-sanctum of your mind where, where your emotions and your, and your tie to them are so strong that you don't want to lose that bond, so you will sacrifice ideas, position, principles to maintain that tie. Now you understand why we're designed for this. In God's design in a healthy marriage and, and, and healthy relationships, this bonding is a very healthy thing. Do you see how this could be misused when you bond yourself to somebody who isn't healthy? And how this could influence you. This, of course, is predicated on having an initial desire of attraction for the person. It doesn't apply to someone who's being molested or raped. Because in that experience, you're not getting a dopamine surge of pleasure. You're getting a catecholamine surge of the stress hormones, which causes fear and anxiety. And so you get a revulsion for the person. So this is a voluntary participation in which somebody you have a desire for. Yes. It's a biochemical change that occurs. If there's that desire in your heart to be, be a participant, not, a, not being a, uh, violated as a victim. Does that make sense? Does this give us insight as to why God warns us against adultery and prem- premarital sex? Is it because he says, oh, I've, I've got rules and if you break them, I'm going to have to punish? Or he says, look, I've made you in a really special and cool way that when you take your good judgment and p- spend your time to find somebody who really is a good match for you and then you join yourself together in marriage, you're going to have a really cool, special, bonded relationship of, of a really neat love and trust that, that is designed to operate in the image of God. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in unity and one, separate but yet one. This is the way I've designed you, that you will become separate beings but yet one, united in an inner way that's very special. And someone will be in your heart and you will be in their heart in a way that no one else can be. Do you see why Satan wants to destroy this? He wants to use this to control and manipulate. So we can give a message to our kids about sexual fidelity that has good reasons behind it, not just to be a party buster. Does this give us any insight into why God warns against this stuff and also why Satan attacks? And what what do you think about the Lord's anger? We didn't have time to read the whole passage there, but it says the Lord's anger burned against them when they were involved in all this stuff sexually. Why was the Lord angry? Well, parents, if you had a child in high school and you found out your child was sexually active with, with prostitutes, would you be angry? Why? Would you hate your child? Would you want to kill your child? He said, absolutely. I brought you into this world. I'm going to take you out. Okay, no. Um, Would you be angry about the damage happening to your child? So how do we understand God's anger? Well, this is a metaphor. Imagine you're a a soldier in Vietnam. You're on guard duty in a tower in a tree outside, right at the edge of your camp. And you see a five-year-old child, Vietnamese child, heading towards your camp carrying a satchel. And you know it's full of explosives. What do you do? If you do nothing, you know many of your fellow innocent soldiers are going to be blown up by this kid carrying the satchel. What do you do? Are you angry to be in that situation? Does it make you mad? Yes, it does, doesn't it? Wouldn't it make you mad? Now do you understand God's anger? He's in this situation that we put him in constantly. That if he doesn't act, more devastation and more injury is going to occur to his innocent children on earth. And we are constantly forcing him to do things he hates in order to save. And then you get insight into his anger. 
Yes. You've got to talk about his sovereignty, though. I mean, you're really raising some very interesting questions here. If we're forcing God, who's sovereign? We're forcing his hand out of love to protect. I mean, I think, I understand what you're saying, but I think the whole argument is really nuanced and very interesting. Well, we have to understand God's sovereignty always operates in harmony with his character of love. He doesn't violate his own nature, does he? Does he go against his own law? Law of love? He won't violate his own nature, will he? No. So he only exercises his sovereignty and harmony with who he is. See, we have this idea of human sovereignty and a totalitarian God is often projected. I'm not saying you're doing that at all. But people will project a totalitarian God who can arbitrarily do anything he wants at any time. I've heard preached from pulpits in our own denomination that God, in fact, is arbitrary. I've heard it. And the Sabbath is proof of his arbitrariness is often taught. The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. No reason for it. It's given to test you because God is sovereign and he can do that. This is a lie. It's a distortion. God is not this way. Arbitrary just means because he's power, he can do what he wants. God is a God of love. They will often say things. God is not only loving, he's also just. Understand the infinite diminution of God in that statement. Because the Bible doesn't say God is loving. The Bible says God is love. How many of you can be loving to your children and family? You can be loving, can't you? How many of you are love? Do you see the infinite difference between being loving and being love? And when people make these statements, they diminish God to our model, to make him like us. God is love. He's the source of all that is good. And he never contradicts his own character and nature. I just want to read one comment out of 6 BC 1119 uh, from Ellen White um, about Satan's goal and why he attacks us sexually. And Because the sexual relationship in marriage is, is we were created in God's image. Male and female created he them. It's the joint relationship that makes us godlike, not singly and alone, not in isolation. And, 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 and that, that sexual unique bonding, the two becoming one, is part of that incredible gift that he has given us. And in that unique bonding, we are able to procreate and bring beings out of love that re- resemble us in our image as God in love brings beings that resemble his him and image. It's an incredible gift. Satan attacks it. This is what it says. Satan's aim has been to reproduce his own character in human beings. No sooner was man created than Satan resolved to efface in him the image of God and to place his stamp where God should be. That's what Satan is trying to do. Destroy in us godliness. God, of course, is working to restore us. Now, I had to get to this story. I only have a few minutes left. But um, talks about trusting and ba- Balaam, that the Israelites were seduced because Balaam, God's prophet, that they looked at as God's prophet, told them it was okay to come to this feast. And if the prophet said it, well, heck, man, it should be okay, right? We should listen to the prophet. So they came to the feast where they were seduced and all this stuff. And the question is, should we listen? Just if the prophet said it, then we ought to do it. Well, let's not take what Balaam said. Let's look at some other instructions from Deuteronomy. We'll skip the one we don't have time for, where Deuteronomy tells them to take their tithe and buy fermented wine and come before the Lord. We'll skip that. We don't have time for that one. But look at this one. Deuteronomy 14, 23 through 26. Actually, that is the tithe one. We're going to go to the other one. Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her to into your home, and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. 
After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. Notice the progression. Bring her to the home, shave, cut nails, mourn a month, married. Next verse. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Trial marriage. How do you like it? How long did he get to try her out for? <laughs> Doesn't say how long. But hey, the Bible said it. I believe it. Let's go do that, right? You like this practice? I mean, Moses wrote this. This must be from a really good prophet. We should just follow it, right? I see some heads shaking. Are you telling me we shouldn't follow the Bible? And I hear some heads nodding over here. Yes, now we shouldn't follow the Bible. Do you know I looked at our and our and <laughs> that part was done away with at the cross? He said. <laughs> you know I, I looked in our, our Bible commentary on this passage. See, well, what what our commentary says about this? You know what our commentary says? Nothing. Nothing. They skipped it. <laughs> they wouldn't comment on it. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> Thank you. So how do you make make this? Well, here's what I, I make of it. And of course, first off, we take Jesus' insight, John and Matthew thirteen, excuse me, Matthew nineteen, three through eight, where he talks when they ask him about divorce, is it lawful for men to marry and divorces, blah, 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 blah. He says, Haven't you read in the beginning it was not this way, male and female made them uh, two shall become one? He said, Well, why did Moses give divorce? He said, It was because of the hardness of your hearts. Okay? We have to understand the number one reason what God is dealing with here, these people's hearts were hard. So we have to put take that into context. Two. Look back at the Deuteronomy texts. What we just read. What was the basis of marriage? Look back at the context in the in, in the in what was happening. What was the basis of the marriage? Well, they're marauding and they're killing her family, and they see a girl who's physically attractive. Do they take time to build a relationship, to get to know her, to find out her personality? Or she's hot. That's it. This is physical attraction. There is no understanding of character qualities, of, of, uh, of whether this person loves or knows God. There's nothing going on here other than physical lust and attraction. This is what we're dealing with. Um, so what does God say? Okay. He knows their hearts, and their hearts are hard, and they're impulsive, and they're, all the stuff they're constantly doing, even with the other gods and things. So he says, okay, I know they're going to do this anyway, so how can I help them in their hardened state? Take her home, have her shave her head and cut her nails, and listen to her whine for a month. <laughs> and see if she's still attractive to you at the end of that month. <laughs> Think it through, ladies. There's no cosmetics back then. Not of any significant nature in the wandering in the wilderness. But if after that month you still want to marry her, you can. But if you're not pleased with her, let her go. Why? I think actually God made it very easy for them to get rid of their pagan wives. Because of the influence that we just read about that they would have over these people. And if you want another Bible example of God's wanting them to get rid of pagan wives, consider their release from the captivity and what Ezra had them do. Ezra, if you remember, had all of them who had pagan wives get rid of all their pagan wives. They've been married for years. Why? Because of the influence that a spouse can have over the spirituality of a spouse. And God hates divorce, it says in Malachi. He hates divorce. But we have to understand he hates something worse than divorce. You know what he hates worse than divorce? The destruction and eternal loss of his children. 
He hates that even worse. He'd rather have you divorced and eternally saved than to stay married and eternally lost. But he'd rather have you stay married and both eternally saved. That'd be the ideal. And I think what he's saying here is, you guys are going to do it. I can't stop you because I would make you a robot to stop you. So let's do these parameters. Let's set these protocols up. And it will, I think, diminish a great likelihood. A lot, a lot of them will say, no, I really didn't want her after after a month of hearing all that noise. Whew. Okay? Um, and she really isn't that good looking without her hair, i got to tell you. Um, and I think he was trying to protect them. Do you, not, do you not think that's probably what's going on here? And then I think he was trying to ultimately protect their hearts from the defilement. Remember what happened to Solomon, who took these heathen wives. His heathen wives had him ultimately worshiping pagan gods and offered one of his own children as a sacrifice to Molech. How the influence of a spouse can bring us down. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are so good and so patient with us. and We are so sometimes dark in our thinking and stubborn in our willingness to cooperate. But you patiently work with us and work with us and work with us and meet us where we are to bring us where you want us to be. Open our hearts to your spirit who, can, who we ask to take all that Christ has achieved right upon our hearts. The, the, the character of Christ, that we can love you and love others, and we can be freed from this fear and insecurity. Let us begin in this class to begin ministering to each other, to begin ministering the love of acceptance and grace, that we can get to know each other for real, that we can have a unity, a unity of heart, mind, and spirit, that this class and this church can represent you and prepare the world for your coming. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.